Hello and welcome to Setting Sales, Navigating AI in Higher Education. This is a podcast about rethinking teaching to create better education for everyone, with or without AI. I'm your host, Alexander Jansky, leader of the Innovation and Digital Education team at the University of Zurich. Every week, I'll ask new interviewees from our university about their thoughts on AI. Generative AI promises us a brighter future. Want to become a more efficient writer? No problem. In need of some brainstorming? Here we go. You haven't got a study buddy at hand? ChatGPT is here for you. Sounds amazing, doesn't it? But if we lift the curtains behind Gen AI, we realize it's a race between tech giants. A race of money, power and glory. A race that comes with unethical practices and results in a product that cannot guarantee us safety and privacy. How shall we deal with this as a society? And is it acceptable to use AI tools at university? I'm so happy that Anna Shera is with me here today to help us uncover these questions. Formerly an assistant professor at Quantitative Marketing at the University of Zurich, Anna Shera has embarked a bold new venture, stepping out of academia and into the dynamic world of technology startups she recently co-founded Delta Labs. Delta Labs offers AI services and consulting for enterprises. Moreover, she wrote a book, You and AI, a guide to understanding how artificial intelligence is shaping our lives. Anishera, let's set some sales. Sounds good. <laughs> let's get started. So currently people from various disciplines are exploring how Gen AI could serve them as a tool. Do you have any tools that you would recommend for teaching? Um, I have a lot of tools that I'm using. Um, not all of them I would consider very new or innovative or Gen AI, um, but many of them have AI features. So one of the tools that I use have been using for uh, over five years now um, is Canva, which is a design platform. So it helps you, you know, make presentations, visuals. Um, and they have implemented more and more AI features like Magic Write that helps you summarize or translate. Um, they've integrated Dolly to have more visuals um, generated by AI. Um, and overall, I find that very helpful to create content that is more visually engaging for students. Um, and other than that, um, in the past year, I have been extensively using ChatGPT, of course, um, mainly for... Um, you know, generating ideas, going back and forth, how to structure something, um, but also with my students in class. So do you have the feeling that also students are using these tools? Um, actually, in my last seminar uh, in, in the university, um, the marketing experiment seminar, I actively encouraged them to use it. Uh, so they have to write a research paper, um, but they conduct their own experiments. Um, and in the end, I was very open um, for them to use the tool uh, to write up the report. Uh, but in the end, I was very clear that they have to, you know, check if everything is correct, um, if it makes sense, if it's a good argument. Um, so in the end, it's not mindlessly, you know, taking over texts and having an AI tool that 
writes for you, uh, but something that writes with you, more of a sparing partner that you have on your side. Um, and then we openly discussed, you know, how, how does that help them uh, working with AI for that project. But in the end, they still had to develop, you know, their own uh, experiments, had to set up studies. Uh, so it's more of, you know, having an AI on the side that can help you with some of your tasks, uh, but it's not taking over all of your tasks. Yeah. So um, let's elaborate a bit on that. Would you say there are certain tasks where you would encourage other teachers, other lecturers, not to use AI, especially would you, what kind of, yeah, what kind of tasks do you still do without AI? Are there any? Mm -hmm. Or do you prefer your own mind? I would, uh, I would actually rephrase the question, are there any tasks where I completely delegate to AI? And I think there's hardly any. Um, so even I was I was thinking about um, even considering a spam filter, right? Something that we've used for many years, and you know we have relied on AI to filter out spam email. But even then, we're asked to go through a folder and check if is this really spam. So we're not fully uh, giving up control in the end. Um, and I think this is very similar with um, you know JetGPT and other models today. Um, It's more of a sparing partner. They help you, you know, do tasks more efficiently, faster. But in the end, it's always, you, you should never use them mindlessly. It's always us being in control and checking if that makes sense, um, if it's a good argument, etc. Um, so even if I have, at home, I have an automatic vacuum cleaner. Even there, I still have an additional manual one. Uh, and there's many areas in my house where I think, you know, that vacuum cleaner is not doing its job. So I take over control and do the rest. So it's like the AI, the AI can do like 80% of the task maybe and help you do that faster. But I'm still doing, you know, that 20% and I'm in there um, and fully paying attention. It's never that, you know, I'm mindlessly delegating all my tasks to AI. That's a really good point so that you can, you should not, give away the, yeah, the task fully to, to an AI tool during artificial intelligence. So your book has the subtitle, A Guide Understanding How um, Artificial Intelligence is Shaping Our Lives. Would you say that the general public underestimates AI? Um, now, there's is also a broader question. Um, there's many components to that. Um, the first one um, is, you know, we underestimate it if we do not know it exists. Um, so is there a general awareness of in which tools or where in our environment we're already using AI? Um, and in the past years, uh, looking at social media, we've seen many studies where people were completely unaware that there's an algorithm that structures their newsfeed. And obviously, that's a problem because they misconceive how, you know, their opinion might be mainstream, which it might not be the case, right? Uh, so the first step is knowing where AI exists and where we already encounter it in our daily lives and how it's shaping our world um, and the way we see it. And the second is understanding how to use these AI models. And this is also often, a, you know, a case where there's lots of misperceptions. Uh, best example here is JetGPT. Um, in, in the early days, we saw lots of um, media articles, you know, stating that um, people used it as a search engine. Um, this is not what the model was trained for to do. And obviously, if people 
understand it that way and do not understand that, you know, there might be old training data in there, it might not be accurate output, etc., um, then this is a problem. So we need to understand first that AI models exist, where they exist, where they shape our lives, and second, what they are trained to do, what they're doing, how they shape our lives, and then understanding how we can use them so we do not misuse them in a, in a wrong way. Would you say that the announcement of ChatGPT raised the awareness of AI? Definitely. Um, so I think um, with ChatGPT, and I think this is actually a good development, AI has has hit mainstream. Um, and I think one reason also is that this tool, um, like the name already implies, ChatGPT, is very easy to use. So it has very low entry barriers. You can simply go ahead and chat with an AI now. So this has very low entry barriers. So there's lots of people, including journalists, that try it out, see what it can do. And obviously, this is what um, we see in the media today. Um, and I think this is very, very good that we now have this discussion and have this perception now that, you know, AI is all around us. It has been for many years, but now it's more of a, you know, more aware in our minds. And I think this is a good development. But isn't there a risk if everyone can use AI? Doesn't it open doors for people to misuse it? Mm -hmm. Um, there definitely is a risk. Um, just as with any technology, you can misuse it. And in this case, you can misuse it at a large scale, creating, you know, deep fakes, creating very persuasive text um, and, and fabricating uh, uh, things. Um, but I'd like to point out the other side of the coin um, in that it can also be democratizing. So having this easy access um, and easy usability of this technology means um, that now it can also help people create better work. Um, let me give you one example. Um, for instance, in research, we know that readability of a research paper uh, is a huge component if this paper eventually gets published in a top tier publication. Um, now, obviously, there's lots of researchers who are doing tremendous jobs in their research and the studies that they're doing, but they're not very good communicators or writers necessarily. Um, and now in this case, these tools can actually help them write better, help them communicate their research better um, to where they have the same level of standards that other researchers have who might have had access to you know, um, lectures or people going through their work and helping them correct and make it more readable. Uh, or also simply not being a native speaker in that language. Um, so it can help you create text that is very persuasive um, and following the scientific standards in your field. That's a good point. Let's shift the focus a bit and talk about writing. Students can use AI tools to help them write their bachelor thesis, and currently it's impossible to differentiate between generated text and human-written text. Do you have any thoughts on that? That's actually a good question, um, and I like to change the perspective again. Um, so I think it's not the question about, you know, um, are students using that and, and what should we do about this, but rather uh, we should be teaching students how to use that and rather not, you know, ignore and point fingers. Because ultimately, I can understand why students are doing this. Um, I mean, if you look at the news um, and the media today, there's tons of papers telling you that this is the innovation of the century. Um, it's been compared to electricity or the invention of the Internet. And 
obviously this is something where they feel this is a technology they cannot ignore. This is something that they will have to work with in their future. Um, so they have to learn how to use it. So I think it's important that educators do not ignore it, but rather embrace and teach students actively and openly how to use these tools. I totally agree with you. You also emphasize that there is a need for a collaboration between AI and humans. Is there anything where you would say we really need to pay attention in this collaboration? Um, definitely. Um, and again, it goes back to what I initially said is uh, that we need to learn what these models can do and what they can't do. So understanding what they can be used for. Um, and regarding ChatGPT, um, we now know, and it's been all over the news, that they hallucinate. And they do that very convincingly. So they very convincingly give you wrong content. But it's embedded in natural language, sounds very, very convincing. Um, so this is something where we have to pay very, very good attention to see, you know, does this make sense? Does this sound reasonable? Is this, for instance, an, a, a real uh, source that it's citing? Uh, so I eventually tested it on, um, I was just discussing about uh, machine bias with JetGPT. And in the end of the discussion, I asked, you know, this sounds really, really reasonable. Can you give me a source for this, uh, what you just mentioned? And it did. Of course, it just gave me uh, a number of publications. And I checked them out. They sounded very reasonable, but the journals didn't exist. And the Uh, you know, the authors had, you know, just mixed up uh, the the, the um, first and last names, so it didn't make sense. But in total, it sounded very reasonable. And I think this is something, for instance, very important to teach our students to let them know, you know, it makes up things and they sound very, very reasonable. But in the end, if you mindlessly just take the content and use that for your thesis, you will be graded on the output that you have generated even with the AI. And if it is wrong or, you know, if it doesn't make sense, you will get a you know bad grade. This is not good content that you have uh, generated. So you have to have, you know, this kind of red flag or, you know, a correction marker when you work with the AI going through and checking what makes sense and what doesn't. So would you say that critical thinking is now even more a skill we need to yeah, teach students and not only the students, also the general public? Definitely. So you have to learn to be very critical with these systems. And um, I would also argue that um, deep knowledge actually becomes more important. So you need to be able to see, you know, is this a good argument or not? Um, is this, um, you know, a good source? Um, so you actually need to know a lot about the area to be able to work well with um, the AI models. So it's not um, saying that, you know, students should no longer learn, you know, any content. They have to in order to be able to evaluate what the output of the AI, um, you know, if it makes sense or not, if it is good or not. Um, and I think this is where also the education can shift, right? We have students working together with the AI and then jointly discuss the output. What makes sense? Where do we, you know, where do we see red flags and why? Um, so teaching them how to work with the AI rather than, you know, telling them not to do that at all. Now let's talk about exams. In assignments and exams, educators basically give students the best prompts to feed the chatbot. If they want to cheat, they only have to enter the exam question and the chatbot gives them the answer. 
They do not have to evaluate if the answer is right. That's what the grade is normally for. So is this the end of exams? Um, I don't think uh, this is the end of exams. Um, I think it's the end of, or it, it is a, I see it as an opportunity to rethink education. Um, it's an opportunity to rethink what are the important skills in times of AI that we need to teach our students. Um, and it doesn't mean that, you know, necessarily uh, students, as I mentioned before, do not need to have any, you know, knowledge um, in certain areas and that they have to memorize things. Um, very, very, to give you an example, uh, very similar to a calculator, right? Um, everybody today is using a calculator. Um, The invention of the calculator simply shifted um, two things. First, you have to know, you know, if you ask students to still manually do calculations, you have to have a good argument to tell them why this is important. So you have to explain why this is an important skill for them to know. So you have to have a good line of argumentation. Um, and the second point it does is it focuses more on, you know, um, teaching how to approach a math problem. You know, what are the different steps that you have to take to solve a certain problem? And then you can use a calculator to, you know, help you with these individual steps. And I think generative AI or JetGPT and large language models prompt us to do the same thing in a different area. Uh, rethinking, you know, why do they still have to memorize certain things about history events, etc.? Why is this important that you have that as your background knowledge? Um, to have that line of argumentation, and then teaching more of an how do you approach problems and, and, and you know, having these, these oversight skills when you're using AI. Now, of course, our students are like, they, they don't want to cheat. So that's not, that's not the problem. But maybe they are just overwhelmed with the content and it's very stressful. We all know studying is not easy. So... Maybe they are, we just push them to, to cheat, to um, think, yeah, I know I need to learn this for my future job, but I, I'm just not able now. I don't have the time to prepare for the exam. So we push them a bit to cheat. So is it, do we, do we have to reduce or out of maybe, do we have to think what skills? Do we need to teach and what kind of skills we, they are probably obsolete? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, definitely. So I think, um, as I mentioned before, we definitely need to think about what are the most important skills that we're teaching in times of AI. Um, and uh, what you mentioned is basically a, a question of how we structure education. Um, and I think here AI can also be helpful. Um, um, there's discussions on, you know, having these AI tutors, um, having AI as a guidance counselor um, and all that. Um, at the moment, what, there's uh, one guidance counselor for 200 students, et cetera, right? So this is a problem. And maybe AI can help them through that process throughout their, you know, education uh, when they have questions to have that personal connection where they can ask these questions without, you know, being ashamed, uh, things like that. So, again, um, this is also where we need to rethink how we structure the education um, in itself. And again, AI can also help to be there as an assistant, um, guiding students through that process and hopefully also helping them with their mental well-being. 
let's stay with this uh, tutors a bit. There are recent studies that show that the uh, context people f um, find dialogues with ChatGPT uh, even more empathic and of a higher quality than to chat with a person. So is it possible that AI will become such a good communicator that teachers are not needed anymore and traditional teaching is uh, superfluous? <laughs> good question. Everybody's asking, you know, what are humans doing in 10 or 20 years? Uh, what's our skills uh, that are still needed? Um, I think one important point here is to um, point out um, the context of these studies. So uh, one of the studies that I know that has looked at empathy um, was done in the medical area, so with patient care. Um, and they tested um, ChatGPT against um, answers from medical uh, personnel. Um, and in the end, uh, patients uh, rated the answers of ChatGPT higher in empathy and in quality. Um, now, the interesting aspect about the study is that, uh, and it's important to note that medical staff is inherently overworked. So when you look at the details of the study, the answers of human workers tended to be a lot shorter and a lot more to the point. So they told patients, you know, do this, do that, and then they were done. JetGPT repeated, oh, I understand you have a concern in this area, etc. So it was a lot longer, and obviously this creates the sense of empathy. It does not mean that um, inherently AI is better at empathy than humans. It's just important to consider the context that we're talking about. And, you know, if it is overworked humans, they will give you very short answers and they're not very empathic. Um, so uh, this is important to consider. And um, I think what it shows is that, again, AI can help as an assistant. So it can help maybe, you know, for very frequent questions, frequent concerns, give you answers. And that would hopefully free up time of human workers to have more time to give that empathic answer for these very, very important and critical instances. So referring back to what you asked about education, I don't think that it can um, totally substitute a human teacher and the empathy that humans will give to each other. Um, but it can help support to where it frees up more time that you can actually be empathic with, you know, your co-workers, students, etc. again. Because if we have this, you know, kind of area where we're all overworked, stressed for time, a lot of us are not very empathic, and hopefully, you know, AI can help us free up that time again to show more empathy, and then the quality of our interactions would also increase. So this is not the end of teaching and education and teachers and professors? Um, I don't think so. I think in general, I think of AI as a sparing partner. Uh, AI can help us do a lot of tasks, um, can help us free up time for the very important aspects. Um, and there's this notion of where we're headed towards is the idea of a feeling economy. So feeling tasks that you mentioned, empathy, are those where technology is still very poor at. So these are human skills that will become more and more important. And hopefully this is what we can focus on more in the future. That's wonderful news for universities. Let's talk a bit about data mining and copyright issues. AI models are scrapping masses of data from the internet, also including copyrighted content and personal information. Many companies are now being sued by artists, music companies or writers who claims that their intellectual property is misused or taken without their consent. 
how shall we as a society deal with this data colonialism? Um, <clears throat> I think this also has actually two questions, two separate questions. Um, the first is the question of training data um, that companies like OpenAI use to train models like their GPT-3, 4, etc. Uh, training large language models basically means scraping the whole internet. Um, any uh, information that is publicly available um, and based on that, they train. Um, and uh, clearly, this has different perspectives, um, of course. And I can understand the discussion from artists. Um, they want to have a fair share for, you know, their um, data, their po uh, pictures, etc., being used without their consent. Um, on the other hand, there's always the argument from the tech companies saying that, you know, this is fair use of publicly available data and it would harm innovation, you know, if we restrict that too much. Um, so I don't want to take one side necessarily. It's a big discussion also if you think about artists in general, right? Uh, if you have a human artist, we also are influenced by their work. We look at their work uh, to make our own pictures. Um, so we do that uh, as well, just like the AI model. Um, so there's different perspectives. Um, and I think what the discussion shows is that we have to find a good balance uh, between what it means uh, to have a fair use of data um, and and not harming innovation on the other hand um, to where, you know, it would completely restrict um, the uh, innovation and, and the development of new AI models because ultimately we benefit a lot or we can benefit a lot from these AI models. Um, so uh, we kind of have to find a balance between these two parties. And at the moment, what we're seeing is that the legal domain is uh, lagging behind a lot. Uh, so there's a lot of gray area. Um, so hopefully we'll see in the next years that there's some um, good decisions that will show us and guide us the way what is a good use of data. Um, but there's also important to note that um, companies like OpenAI want to make their models commercially usable. Uh, so ultimately, I'm very optimistic that they will listen um, and, and take these concerns seriously. Um, so what we've seen already is um, in their DALI model, they're restricting uh, what you can prompt. So you cannot prompt for life artists, etc. Um, so this is already in development where they're proactively doing things that they're not legally required. This is a good development. Um, and another point um, where I feel optimistic is that there's other AI models that are being developed to um, to to help artists, etc., save their work. So there's um, AI tools that they can put on their um, um, pictures, just like a cloak of invisibility. So Uh, training uh, models that they simply cannot see uh, this picture or it would distort uh, the training of the models. And these are developments um, that kind of also give um, these companies like OpenAI an incentive to be more proactive and transparent um, in their use of data. Now, the second question um, that you refer to is the idea of data colonialism, which is actually not new. Um, the discussion has been going on with Google, Amazon, etc., collecting a lot of data and using that for their profit. Um, and the question is different insofar that 
this mainly concerns also internal data. So they're collecting a lot of user data, um, how users are using their products, how they're, you know, surfing the internet, etc., to ultimately, you know, give them better marketing, to um, give them better products and benefit from that economically. Um, and for me, this is more of a question of uh, what we should do with data in general that is, you know, inherently owned by one company. And if that shouldn't be made publicly available so other companies can benefit and innovate on this data as well. We've already seen this development in science with the idea of open science, where we're more inclined to now share data that we have collected within studies, uh, share that with the um, science community so others can innovate on that as well. And um, we have seen approaches with GDPR, et cetera, to where companies are more responsible in their use of data and hopefully will also go towards that direction that, um, you know, this data is not only used responsibly and transparently, but also in a way that others can innovate with it as well. And it is shared more um, among the public. Would you say prompt engineering is the future skill of the future? <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's talking about prompt engineering now, and yeah, there's tons of uh, job posts uh, and highly paid posts for uh, prompt engineers. Um, I think this is actually a very um, um, development of our time right now. Right now, you need to do prompting to work with these models. Um, I don't think there needs to be, you know, a very general prompting course for students. Um, it depends on the domain and it depends on the tasks. Um, again, if you're studying architecture, yes, you should be learning how to, you know, work with Midjourney, for instance, to create design ideas. And then if you learn that, you should be learning how to prompt for that. I don't think there's a general need to learn prompting in general because every model works a little bit differently. They're evolving over time, so that is changing very quickly. So I think... Um, we need to think as educators more broadly about it. You know, how can we use AI for the tasks that are needed in that specific domain? And then learn how to use these tools um, to support that. And if prompt engineering is part of that, then yes, they should learn it. But I don't think it's the, the, the thing that is most necessary all over time. These tools always get easier to use. Um, so I don't think, and, and they change all the time. So I don't think um, that is something that will last very long. Uh, it's more important to define what are the important tasks in a specific discipline that AI can take over. And how do I work with AI at the moment to do these tasks? That, that's it. <laughs> Now, obviously, um, these companies, these private companies, want to make money. And uh, we also can see that now ChatGPT4 is so much more powerful than the free version ChatGPT 3.5. And not all students can afford it. So isn't that unfair? Oh, that's a very good question. Um I think, yes, for an educator, it's important that everybody has the same uh, or we're trying to have that same starting uh, ground. Um, so if we expect them to use certain technologies, um, everybody should have access to the same tools. Um, <clears throat> so, yes, from that sense, I think we have to ensure that um, they have a level playing field with the tools that we're asking or requesting. Um But again, I mean, this is, we've also, I mean, at the moment, students need a laptop, students need other tools as well. Um, so I think there's ways that 
we can deal with that. It's not like a huge investment of a million dollars or so. Um, so I think there might be, you know, universities having licenses for the tools that we expect them to use. Um, if we teach them how to, you know, program with a certain programming software, the university ha has access to that. Or we, if we teach data science, right, we have access to SPSS, et cetera, on a university level. Um, and it needs to be very similar with um, these new tools coming up as well. So everybody has access to them. Um, yeah, but it's a fair point. The AI researcher and activist Joy Bolamwini claims that AI tools should be tested before they are displayed in the real world, especially when they have impact on people's lived experience and life opportunities. Do you agree? Is it irresponsible to use Gen AI at the university? Um, again, this is... a uh More than one question, uh, so let me answer the first one about uh, the rigorous testing part. Um, and and I, I think the simple answer is, who wouldn't agree that we want to have uh, AI that is safe and you know has ethical use? So um, obviously, this is very easy to answer. Yes, I would like to have that. Um, but but one point um, here is. It's always easy to criticize and find, you know, something that's not working. It's a lot harder finding practical solutions. Um, and I think this is where we need to have the discussion going, not only pointing out and pointing fingers uh, about all that's wrong, but about finding these solutions on, you know, how do we proceed from here now that we're here. Um, so I think this is uh, where we have to go. Um, and again, find that balance between having um, fair data use, um, fair and ethical AI on the one hand, and not hindering and, hamp uh, uh, hindering and, and you know, um, slowing down innovation on the other, because we all can ultimately benefit quite a lot from AI and the developments that we're seeing. And maybe... Just to step in here a bit, you said we need to discuss who needs to do this discussion. Also a good point. Um, again, this is why we're promoting uh, the idea of AI literacy. I think um, everybody should ultimately be involved or at least have a say if they want to. Um, so it's not only the elite um, and the tech companies um, that should be sitting at the table, but ultimately what my hopes are at least is that as a society we would have a general discussion on where we want to go with that um, and then from that point uh, start discussing what that means and how we can you know have these uh, guardrails uh, for AI and the innovations that we're seeing but this is actually also again nothing new um, we've seen that with other technologies before um, innovators are always fast to push something on the market see if it's uh, you know going well or not and if it is regulate step in. Just think about a car, right? Um, it was, um, people were driving cars and there was no rules about, you know, safety guardrails. But eventually, you know, if they become more ubiquitous in our society, um, we have to have these rules um, and regulations. And this is not um, very different for generative AI. So we need to have that discussion and see, um, you know, what are good rules and regulations for that as well. And um, regarding your second question, um, is it irresponsible to use generative AI at a university? I would like to rephrase. Um, I think it is irresponsible to ignore it at a university level. Um, if we think and say that this is uh, such an ambiguous um, uh, innovation, um, if it is something that is so uh, life-changing, um, changing our future of work, all that, 
I think we cannot ignore and tell students that they can only use it in their private lives. Um, again, I think what we should be doing is not only telling them that the technology exists, but also teaching them on how to use it responsibly. Um, and then a step further, even going, you know, what can you do with this tool? What can you do with that technology? How can it help you in your particular domain to be more productive, um, to, you know, generate more ideas, different ideas, etc.? Um, so I think this is the discussion that we should be having. To sum up this episode of Setting Sales, I would like to bring up a quote by the writer Gilbert Chesterton. He wrote, We are all in the same boat in a stormy sea and we owe each other terrible loyalty. Do you think the journey with Gen AI reassembles a stormy sea? And what kind of loyalty do we owe each other for a brighter future? Hmm. I think there's uh, definitely um, a lot of um, ideas about this stormy sea um, and being in a boat together that I like. Uh, I'd like to rephrase it, I guess, more positively and having a voyage uh, towards uncharted waters. Um, so we don't necessarily know yet where we're going. Uh, but we're all in this together. I like this idea. Um, for me, um, what kind of loyalty do we owe each other for a brighter future? I think at the moment what we're seeing and what I'm also hoping is now that AI is becoming smarter and smarter in areas that we used to define as human intelligence, including language, right? Um, I think this is a chance for us to all together define what it means to be human, um, what it is, um, you know, that is specific um, about us and how we want to, you know, shape this world together. And this is the kind of loyalty that I hope um, to have um, all together in this boat uh, to chart, you know, where do we want to go as humans? What is uniquely human and how do we want to shape this world in the future? And hopefully we'll have that discussion together. So not only uh, some elites discussing that, but everybody becoming involved in that discussion to see where we're going and working towards that brighter future where everybody can benefit from, uh, benefit from not only just a few. That would be my hope. That's wonderful last words for our episode today. Anashera, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts here in the Setting Sales podcast. Thank you very much for having me. If you enjoyed this episode of Setting Sales, I would appreciate it if you subscribed. Please share your feedback, questions and topics that interest you by sending an email to teachingtools at education.ush.ch. You can find all the information in the show notes. Check it out.